0: ready, Bernie? You know it. All right, let's do it. Welcome everyone to Wolverheem Happy Hour. I'm Anthony Personati and I'm Bernie Marini. We
1: are hematology clinical pharmacists and this is a podcast where we drink and we nerd
0: out about data. Welcome back everyone to Wolverheem Happy Hour. Bernard, we have an extra special guest today. We sure do. We have uh, Dr.
1: Dale Bixby here with us, and and Dr. Bixby is our our lead leukemia physician at the University of Michigan, and he's been you know practicing at Michigan for for almost almost two decades. Uh, he went to undergraduate at Kansas State University in, in Manhattan, the little the little apple. Uh, then he did his PhD at the University of Kentucky. Uh, before he went on to his uh, medical school, residency, and fellowship training uh, at the University of Michigan, and then joined our faculty in 2009 um, as a professor and is now a clinical professor uh, and our, our leader of our leukemia program, leading research and clinical trials, and is the, the director of our, of our ACU. And I should add to that, he is a phenomenal hockey goalie for the Detroit Chiefs uh, as a beer league hockey goalie. Isn't that right, Dale?
2: <laughs> well, you know, honestly, Bernie, I was, we, were, we were in the same mindset up until that point. And I'll take you back to the introduction. And when you said the word extra, um, what came to mind is, yes, for those of us who are in the Southeast Michigan area, many know that Anthony and Bernie and I often spend our Sunday nights together doing anything but thinking about hematology and leukemia and often are on the ice competing to win that coveted mini stanley cup Um, but when you (laughs) use the word extra the main thing that i thought of was as a goalie oh my goodness i'm going to get the bucket because for many non-beer league teams that have more than one goalie there's just not enough room on the bench for two goalies so the extra goalie gets to sit on a bucket. (laughs) <laughs> often at times in the tunnels leading up to the ice rink and so i thought i was going to be awarded the bucket for today so i can set all this <laughs> and listen to you guys and your expert opinions on all the topics that are presented here on wolverine
0: oh no absolutely not today the show is going to be the dale bigsby show and you know we'll chime in here and there but uh you know, I think the audience should know that Dale has been, you know, a mentor to us and one of the reasons why Bernie and our are, are, are so intellectually curious slash nerdy is because of you, Dale. Um, and every time Dale comes on service, I think rounds are probably an hour longer than they should be because <laughs> Dale and I or Bernie and Dale will go off on tangents about, you know, just anything because we only get to spend so much time with Dale when he's on service. So um, yeah, this is going to be fun. We're, the audience is in for a treat to, to have Dale on. So thanks again, Dale, for coming. So I guess, you know, the first question uh, is, Dale, uh, what do you have to drink? What did you bring? Did you bring some beer league uh, types of beer?
2: <laughs> well, you know, the, the cooler is only so full and here I don't <laughs> have to share, so I can probably step it up. But I will say that my academic day is not quite done. So I have to describe what I have prepared by the side of the table. <laughs> to be consumed later in the day. So I didn't also keep a list of all of the drinks that you and Anthony Bertie have uh, consumed during your previous podcast. So this may be a repeat, but um, I'm a Michigander and I love Southeast Michigan. And I'm also a fond uh, person for New England IPAs. So Mm. this might be a tried and true for those in Southeast Michigan, but I'm gonna have an M43 after this day is done um, from Old Nation Brewing up in Williamson, Michigan.
0: Beautiful. Nice. That's Bernie, one of my favorites. That is yeah, one of my favorites. Bernie, Bernie uh, you're a beer guy, so I, I imagine you're probably drinking a beer too. I am.
1: I actually have a... Well, I was, I was drinking a Zombie Dust earlier because I was nervous, Ooh. but now <laughs> I have a New Glarus Moon Man uh, IPA, which I got from my friend from Wisconsin who brought these in.
0: Uh, Shout out to Brian Dakarski for the beer. Thank you, sir. Uh, Well, uh, since Dale uh, did some training in uh, Kentucky, I felt there's no better thing to drink than bourbon, and so I've got a. (laughs) Or did did you say Kentucky or Kansas? I'm Canadian, so my geography is terrible, Dale.
2: (laughs) I've got you covered. I was at both.
0: That's what I thought. Okay, okay. So I wasn't. I wasn't. uh, geographically inept there so so yeah because you know he spent some time in Kentucky it's nothing better than bourbon and so I've got a, a Woodford Reserve double oak really good nice bourbon so Bernie what's uh, what do we got on the agenda for today why did we bring the great and wonderful dr. Bigsby on the podcast so we we, we brought uh, Dale here on the podcast
1: to talk to us today about FLT3 positive AML and how we should manage our FLT3 positive patients, uh, um, and so to start, Dale, why don't we start with a little introduction? How about um, you know you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about FLT3. You know what is it? What cellular role does it play?
2: Uh, teach us. <laughs> sure. Sit back, relax, um, enjoy a few sips, and we'll we'll start this uh, we'll start this journey. Um, so, FMS like Tyrosine kinase 3, or FLT3, was a gene that was first identified in hematopoietic progenitor cells back in the early 1990s. I think it was around 1992 that a number of cell lines and primary hematopoietic tissue, um, we identified this protein on the surface. Over the next two, three, four years, and in fact, I believe it was 1996, um, FLT3 was recognized as an important molecule that potentially became mutated in patients with AML. So flt 3 is a ligand-activated, membrane-bound receptor tyrosine kinase. It actually falls under the class three receptor tyrosine kinases. Um, that means it's in the family of platelet-derived growth factor receptors, the kit, and the colony stimulating factor 1R protein. Um, it really has an important cellular role in maintenance proliferation of hematopoietic stem cells so its expression and its activation plays a very pivotal role in making sure that we have enough stem cells to continue hematopoiesis and to allow regeneration of that stem cell pool as a small side note if it's clinically relevant to those listeners um, it also potentially plays a role in dendritic cell development and activation but the majority of Split three seems to be primarily in hematopoietic stem cells. The gene itself um, is a quite large gene, um, and we tend to think of it as having a number of of important residues or moieties throughout the gene protein itself. Um, There's an extracellular uh, series of amino acids, about half the gene, or half the exons go into making up the extracellular domain. There's then a transmembrane and the juxtamembrane domain, and then there are actually two tyrosine kinase domains. Um, I think for the point of this discussion, probably majority of our discussion will be around changes that happen in the juxtamembrane domain and in kinase one or kinase two, um, because that's where ultimately dysregulation happens in foot three, and why we have a job in helping patients with AML, especially those with FLT3 mutated AML. So that's sort of a glossy overview Mm -hmm. of what FLT3 is, how it functions in a cell, and I'm sure we'll have lots of additional discussions on what goes wrong, how it goes wrong, and what we can do about it.
0: So Dale, uh, we have different types of FLT3 mutations that arise in uh, AML. Do you wanna talk about what those two are and what the heck is an internal tandem duplication?
2: Sure, absolutely, absolutely. As you mentioned, um, things can go awry, and they can go awry in a number of ways in foot 3 The actual first mutation identified in foot 3 was what you referenced in internal tandem duplication. So in the juxtamembrane membrane domain of the gene, um, there's a very tight regulation of ensuring that the gene remains in a monomeric form and in a deactivated form and only upon ligand activation does the gene or the protein actually dimerize, autophosphorylate and lead to downstream signaling. And it was recognized soon after the mutation was identified that there is actually a change in the nucleotide and subsequently amino acid structure, whereby the gene can be lengthened through the repetitive addition of nucleic acids and thus the repetitive addition of amino acids in that juxtamembrane domain so there's often an in-frame duplication of between three and approximately 200 um, nucleotides and subsequently the addition of one to approximately 80 amino acids that are duplicated in that juxtamembrane domain that dysregulate that fine-tuning that should happen of foot 3 and thus unfortunately foot 3 is no longer able to self Uh, self-regulate its activity. It's no longer dependent upon ligand binding to lead to activation, and thus it's sending an always-on signal into the cell to grow and replicate, rather than maintaining a small but limited number of hematopoietic stem cells.
0: And then, Dale, the other subtype of of FLT3 mutations, the tyrosine kinase domain, are there differences in the prognosis between a ITD versus TKD, anything different biologically as well?
2: Yeah, so biologically, I think, is where we probably should start. Um, we obviously talked about how FLT3 and its ligand activation lead to increased proliferation and actually a block in differentiation of stem cells to allow for maintenance of that progeny cell population. Um, the internal tandem duplication, or ITD, also leads to proliferation and potentially a block in differentiation. But there are a number of changes that happen inside the cell when a FLT3 ITD mutation happens that doesn't necessarily happen in normal FLT3 activation with a ligand. Um, there's actually a block in transcription, um, a number of transcription factors that would normally lead to myeloid maturation. Um, These include genes such as PU.1 and the CAT-enhancer binding protein. This also causes inhibition of intracellular phosphatases, including ship one that normally down-regulate activity of phosphorylated genes. And then FLT3 ITD mutation actually causes constitutive activity of Wnt signaling, probably due to increased expression of the Wnt ligand receptor Frizzled-4. All of this leads to changes in the cell behavior including enhanced apoptosis, enhanced self-renewal, and enhanced proliferation of the cell. As you mentioned, there are other mutations that can happen including within those two tyrosine kinase domains um, that subsequently lead to activation of FLT3 um, the amino acids that are most commonly mutated are positions 835 and 836, so the aspartic acid in position 835 can be mutated um, through sense or, muta- or through missense mutations that lead to amino acid substitutions, and the isoleucine in position 836 can do the same. Um, these amino acids appear to be important in maintaining the inactive monomeric state of foot 3 and mutations lead to then ligand-independent activation. What we do know about cellular physiology is that the downstream signaling that happens with both the ITD and TKD mutations do have some overlap. Both lead to increased signaling through the RAS, BACSTAT, and PA3 kinase pathways. Um, but split 3 TKDs may not alter transcription factors that lead to myeloid maturation differentiation. So those two transcription factors that I spoke about previously, PU.1 and CEBP, Um, Those may not be as involved in FLT3 TKD biology as they are in ITD biology. All that being said, there is a world of active debate right now in the various prognostic schema that are trying to work out whether or not some of the previously thought prognostic significance of these different mutations should still hold water. for a long time, um, there was debate about co-occurring mutations and their impact on foot 3 biology, and then you bring up the very divisive um, comment about whether or not TKD mutations carry the same risk as flt 3 ITD mutations. I think we were all blessed a number of years ago with Dr. Schlink's um, plenary manuscript back in 2008 in the New England Journal of Medicine where they began to identify, especially in cytogenetically normal or normal karyotype AML, the importance of specific point mutations. And they had the advantage of having a large number of patients to begin working on that important problem. And it took thousands of patients with AML to drill down and be able to talk about just patients with intermediate risk karyotypes or cytogenetically normal AML to begin to tease apart the influence of these individual point mutations in different genes. The challenge with the literature in, in my opinion, on FLT3 PKD mutations is that when you begin to drill down and try to identify the prognostic significance of that mutation in just cytogenetically normal AML, the number of patients that are published begin to approach the low to middle single digits. Um, so, MD Anderson has a manuscript trying to tease apart this important question. And we're talking about ends of eight to 11 patients in each cohort. And it's just hard to know whether or not we're making bold assessments on prognosis with just too few numbers to power those important questions. So, in my clinical practice right now, I'm probably going to commit heresy amongst your listeners, <laughs> but in my clinical practice right now, I do approach split 3 ITD patients exactly the same as FLT3 TKD patients. And we'll talk about how that approach comes forward in just a few minutes.
0: Yeah, certainly uh, a, a controversy uh, for sure, uh, and you, you also have to wonder with the TKDs, are they all created equal, right? Because there's so many different point mutations. Is a D835 the same as, you know, another point mutation? We have no idea, and you're, to your point, Dale, they're, you're dwindling in numbers, um, so I think, you know, that's an open area of research. Um, and then the other controversy I want you to talk about is beyond TKD, the ITDs. There's controversy with co-mutation, co-occurring mutations, like you suggested. Um, you know, say having an NPM1 mutation, um, and then there's this business about having uh, an allelic uh, burden, right? And so maybe you can touch on that. And then, and th- and then I'm going to need you to explain to me. What is an allelic ratio uh, versus you know other things that we get reported like a variant allele frequency? So lots for you
2: to teach us. All right, here we go. Thank you so much. Um, it's it's definitely not topics that I ever thought I would uh, talk about when I was traveling through my medicinal chemistry and pharmaceutics PhD prior to my MD, but I do think. Uh, my professors back then for teaching me a little bit about molecular biology. So I feel somewhat stable on thin ice as I go through these concepts. So I'm going to probably take some of those questions backwards. um, And please feel free to poke me if I'm skipping over questions uh, that you wanted to address at this time. So the first thing is, what about different mutations that occur in these different domains? So we seem to always point to, well, ITD mutations or ITD um, duplications only occur in exons 14 and 15, and thus they're only in the juxtamembrane domain. And foot 3 TKD mutations only occur in the tyrosine kinase domains, so that's around exon 20. But we're finding more frequently as NGS platforms have become part and parcel to our clinical practice, that there are other mutations that can happen within these domains. For example, the juxtamembrane domain, supposedly pure for ITD mutations, can have missense mutations, can have nonsense mutations, can have deletions and insertions, leading to potential activation of FLT3. As you pointed out, however, the problem is there's just not enough patients to truly know whether or not they carry the same prognostic and predictive importance. Um, everybody who works at Michigan knows that we have a great time on Tuesday mornings at 11 a.m. discussing cases at our Leukemia Tumor Board, and I recently brought forward a case of a patient with an unusual uh, deletion within the juxta domain, and we had a lot of active discussions on whether or not that patient's disease process carried the same prognostic importance as ITD mutations, and probably more therapeutically important, whether predicted for responses to tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, The same thing can be said about point mutations that happen in the TKD domain, that we tend to think about point mutations requiring a class 1 inhibitor, Um, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that has activity in both the closed and open conformation of the enzyme. But we're finding out is that those rules about class 1 and class 2 inhibitors probably need to be somewhat refined because some point mutations are still potentially inhibited by class 2 inhibitors and not by class 1 inhibitors. So I think those are important topics that maybe we can flesh out if time allows later on in this discussion. Now I'm going to switch gears and go back to your second question is, what about this lingo that we always get on our Next Generation Sequencing reports or NGS reports about FLT3 mutations? So often when I read these reports, I'm as flustered and as confused as everybody and often have to phone a friend in our molecular hematology program to help them, have them help me understand some of the lingo or language. Um, But when it comes to FLT3, Basically, what I'm looking for is the presence or absence of a mutation. It's going to tell me where in the cDNA and the genomic DNA that that mutation happened. It will tell me what type of mutation that's happening. And then it's going to tell me what the variant allele frequency or the allelic ratio is for that mutation. And outside of the FLT3 ITD, you're probably not going to hear allelic ratio discussed much mainly you're gonna hear about the variant allele frequency. And the way I think about variant allele frequency is it's the ratio of the bad allele divided by a mathematical addition of the good plus bad alleles. So if we take a relatively straightforward situation where someone is heterozygous for a mutation, so they have one cell and one chromosome has a mutation, and the other chromosome does not have the mutation, then that variant allele frequency will be one for the one bad allele that's mutated, divided by one plus one, or two for the one good plus the one bad allele. So the variant allele frequency in that simple example is 50%. Allelic ratio is something that's relatively specific to the FLT3 ITD literature, and is, as its name implies, a ratio. So it's simply a ratio of bad to good, or you could always flip that around the other way and say it's a ratio of good to bad. But I think in most situations, we use that term to imply it's the ratio of the FLT3 mutated alleles to the ratio or to the number of FLT3 unmutated alleles. And exactly why that became more prominent in the FLT3 literature, your guess is as good as mine. Um, I think that over time we began to begin to think about whether or not things like the length of the ITD mutation influence clinical behavior. We also began to think about whether or not the number of mutated alleles were prognostic. And so I think we had to have a common way to discuss this information with other providers And the reason that allelic ratio was chosen perhaps was just that it was one way to discuss the lingo in the same language with others who think about FLT3. Um, I think you also asked about um, some complexities or some pitfalls in reporting FLT3, talking about either variant allele frequency or allelic ratio. And I think that we're probably all as hematologists really pretty comfortable using quantitative molecular techniques, especially in the world of Philadelphia chromosome-positive diseases, such as chronic myeloid leukemia or Philadelphia chromosome-positive acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And there we get a quantity readout of the number of transcripts of messenger RNA of the fusion gene bcr divided by some control gene in which most labs use today, the unfused or unmutated ABLE gene. But what we realize when we talk about CML biology is that the progenitor cell that is mutated is functional. It still gives rise to mature mononuclear cells. And that's why we see the left shift that we do in the peripheral blood. So those mature mononuclear cells contain the Philadelphia chromosome, just like the immature progenitor cell that is malignant. FLT3 AML is different. The malignant cell that blast can't and probably doesn't give rise to mature mononuclear cells. And therefore, when you're drawing a sample for FLT3 testing, we want, if at all possible, to have as many malignant cells in that sample and limit the dilution with peripheral blood or other mononuclear cells that don't arise from that malignant clone but there's no control for that when the assay is performed. It's not like the molecular pathologist goes in with their tiny uh, tweezers and plucks out just the malignant blast and assesses them for the presence or absence of FLT3. And so there's always a concern that there is potential dilution of the sample with non-malignant mononuclear cells. And therefore, can we trust the um, results of the assay to say that a certain percentage of cells or a certain ratio of cells have the FLT3 mutation versus don't have the FLT3 mutation. And I'm just gonna quote people smarter than me um, because that's what I'm pretty good at um, rather than coming up with these wise ideas myself. And I always reference back to Dr. Pratt and Levis, some of the best FLT3 biologists and clinicians that there are in the United States. And they wrote a very important paper in my personal opinion back in 2017 entitled, How I Treat FLT3 Positive AML. And I'm going to probably butcher this, but paraphrase um, their opinion. And they basically said something to the extent of, given the complexity and lack of standardization in determining allelic ratios with FLT3, it has been advocated that the co-occurrence of other mutations, such as the mutation that you referenced earlier, mutation in nucleophosmin or MPM1, even the presence of low levels of FLT3, that that information should not indicate a reason to de-intensify therapy or avoid allotransplant because we just don't have current standards for how we perform FLT3 allelic ratio testing and proof that we're really talking about just the blast in the sample and we don't have proof that we're diluting that specimen. The other thing, and I'll wrap up with this the other thing that worries me is that we know that AML is not a completely clonal process, um, that there are often subclones within the larger population of the blast. And so the readout you get is the entire population of cells assessed, where the allelic ratio may be reported out as 0.4. But who's to say there aren't? 100 cells in that gross population of leukemia cells that have homozygous split-three mutations, and thus those would have reported out as an allelic ratio of one. And that's the subclone that ultimately relapses because it's a higher risk situation. So the presence of subclones with different allelic ratios or different mutations together with concerns about the purity of the sample, again, uh, leads me to heresy number two of our discussion today. And I don't currently differentiate clinical care for my FLT3 ITD patients based upon allelic ratios or oftentimes co-occurring mutations, and do consider, for the most part, many of these patients, especially those with cytogenically normal AML, as higher risk and needing intensive therapy and needing consideration for allo-transplant.
1: That's that's definitely uh, uh, controversial. I like I like that, Dale.
2: Um, maybe I, I, think I know I'm in. I'm, I know I'm in good company here.
1: <laughs> no, this is good. I think you've explained this before really well with the uh, the jelly bean argument. So maybe you know you can tell us a little bit about that. And then you know I think it's important maybe that we talk about some of that data and why the ELN made the change to incorporating that. And I think Anthony has uh, has gone over that pretty well. So maybe Dale, you can. You can reframe your words in the explain it like I'm five jelly bean method. And then maybe, Anthony, you can talk about what ELN did and why based on the data that is there.
2: Yeah, I, I think my, my five year old self likes jelly beans. And so that's where I've stuck to some simple explanations over the years. Um, you know, again, the pathologists sometimes have a hard time because what they're trying to count is a small number of samples in a larger population and and these readouts can be quite challenging given the unknown dilution of samples so you might have a big jar of jelly beans um, that contain i don't know 14 purple jelly beans in a sea of 500 other unknown cells and they're trying to tease out in that large population without being able to spill out the jelly beans outside the jar and count the number of purple jelly beans versus the total number of cells assessed. And then you throw in, in the foot 3 population, the difficulty of those blasts potentially being diluted by non-malignant mononuclear cells. And it really just makes, unfortunately, the world of enumerating allelic ratios and little frequencies in blast cells more cumbersome and more problematic, especially when we make important clinical decisions like do we transplant a patient or don't we transplant a patient with FLT3 mutated AML.
0: One point that uh, Dale made that I, I've not heard this argument before that's a really compelling argument is the subclonal populations, right? So that that to me is, is a strong argument to not fully Trust your your allelic ratio um, because, to Dale's point, if you have a, you know, the the dominant clone that has a allelic ratio that's low, but then you have a subpopulation with a high allelic ratio, you could be potentially mischaracterizing um, your individual patient's higher risk clone, right? So i I think I think that's that's a really important point, and I think um, you know the the E L N uh, clearly. Uh, have been influenced by Pratt's and, and Levis' opinions because uh, they changed their 2017 guideline from um, as we all know, using NPM1 and also the allelic ratio uh, to categorize patients from favorable, intermediate, and and poor risk, and now they've completely removed it. Right? It's it's no longer in mm-hmm. the the most updated ELN 2022. And um, you know, just a quote from their paper, uh, what they said is the the reason for this change relates to exactly what Dale just mentioned is the the method uh, methodological. Methodologic. Yeah, it's a tough word to say, especially when you're (laughs) drinking. (laughs) Uh, Issues with uh, standardizing the assay uh, to measure the FLT3 ITD ratio. So that was reason number one, was just not being able to standardize uh, and accurately characterizing your patient's allelic ratio. Uh, Number two was now that we have FLT3 inhibitors, um, the impact, uh, the modifying impact of -star- and other FLT3 inhibitors um, with or without NPM1 also changes the, uh, the, the prognosis for your patient, potentially. And then uh, one thing that we haven't been doing, uh, but a reason for the change, was uh, they're citing an increasing role for MRD. So instead of using uh, allelic ratios and NPM1, the future they feel um, is potentially using uh, measurable residual disease uh, for, for treatment decisions. So that's, I, I think, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything more to say about all of that, um, but I I think um, we talked a great deal about the underlying biology, the prognosis and whatnot. So why don't we now move into uh, a patient case? Uh, Dale, you brought us a patient case and you can um, maybe present them to us and then Bernie and I can talk through how we would treat this patient and what data we have to support this uh, treatment decision.
2: Sure. and I, I, I... I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I just sort of went back in my files and thought we could talk about some some quote unquote real life patients and how we would clinically approach them at the University of Michigan. Um, So I think the first case was that of a fit patient. And we'll talk about how we clinically approach um, medically unfit patients in just a few minutes. But for our fit patient, we're gonna take a 58 year old female who began to experience increasing malaise, dyspnea, and uh, fatigue over the course of several weeks, ended up seeking uh, further evaluation in clinical care. And as all good hematology cases proceed, a CBC was obtained. And that noted an elevated white count of approximately 58,000. She was anemic to the mid-sixes and had a platelet count of 20,000. Because of the low blood count and because of the identification of blasts, Circulating in her peripheral blood, a bone marrow aspiration and biopsy were performed that identified a myeloid blast population of approximately 50% within the aspirate smear. Again, the immunophenotype of the blast was consistent with acute myeloid leukemia. Otherwise, her past medical history was non contributory, and after an assessment of her heart function and a review of her clinical information, it was felt that she was a candidate for standard induction chemotherapy. Um, we had cytogenetic and molecular testing um, that was sent off from that initial bone marrow aspirate biology and biopsy. And much like the clinical cases that we see here at the University of Michigan, we don't often wait for the cytogenetics to come back in most fit patient cases without a concern for an antecedent hematologic disorder and in those patients without a therapy related disease process and the decision was made to move forward with standard induction chemotherapy with donorubicin and cytarabine given in a three plus seven fashion fortunately our molecular somatopathologists do and often thankfully do quickly get back FLT3 information, and it was identified that she did have a FLT3 ITD mutation. So in summary, a 58-year-old fit woman who's a candidate for standard induction chemotherapy but was identified to have a FLT3 ITD mutation.
0: Yeah, so we're talking a lot of heresy here, Dale, because I know uh, many would... Feel that it's taboo to start chemotherapy without getting molecular uh, um, mutations back, right? (laughs) Um, But to us, and you've you've heard multiple other podcasts from us. There's nothing in our in our view that would change us from using an induction of three plus seven in in this. But you know, NCCN and others say rush the molecular. Don't start your chemo until. You know, you have those back, so (laughs) lots of heresy today. No,
2: and I think it is an active area of conversation, um, not only to do the right thing for the patient, but increasingly, as Anthony referenced earlier, the ELN has made some pretty significant changes in their diagnostic criteria for myeloid malignancies. Alongside of that, the WHO couldn't be left out, and they too made a number of changes in their diagnostic schema with an increasing reliance upon point mutations within molecular genes that sort of began to erode into the blast percentage necessary um, for diagnosing a patient with acute myeloid leukemia. So I feel a little bit like the era of the FAB transitioning to the WHO, where that blast percentage uh, devolved from 30% to 20%. And now we're talking about situations where very, very, very low blast percentages can be seen. And we're still using the term acute myeloid leukemia. But that all relies upon the identification of point mutations. And so how quickly can we, should we get this molecular information out before making therapy decisions. And sometimes the patient's case um, gives us a little bit of luxury of time. Yeah, they're cytopenic, but they are able to wait a period of time with maybe transfusion support so we can make the right clinical decision. But in these more proliferative cases, sometimes we don't have the luxury of time of waiting several weeks for NGS reports to come back. If you don't have friends in high places that can get you a carry type, even perhaps an unstimulated karyotype back in 48 to 72 hours, you are left in a decision making process where you don't have full information and may not have full information for several weeks. And we do have to make therapy decisions, you know, near the time of their diagnosis.
0: Totally agree, Dale. Very well said. So Bernie, why don't I, I'll I'll say what I would treat this patient with and then you can tell me if you agree and then support my decision based off of the evidence. So in this case, I'm happy uh, Dale started 3 plus 7 already. I wouldn't change that. I also wouldn't change his Dono dosing. I would keep it at 90 per meter squared. Um, so I do three plus seven, and I would add myostarin, and I would get our transplanters uh, involved uh, immediately because uh, that, even though that low allelic ratio is there, um, to Dale's prior discussion, this is still a high-risk patient that I would want transplant involved.
1: Yeah, I I would agree with you. I think you know three plus seven plus myostarin would be the current standard of care. I think some of the details probably differ from center to center. And this data is largely based on the, the RATIFY trial, which was published in New England Journal in uh, 2017. And I think briefly we should walk through this study because I think there are a couple of uh, potential flaws to talk about. And maybe this gets into the nuance of what we do uh, versus what you know maybe the guidelines would say that you do. Uh, so the RATIFI trial took young patients with FLT3 positive AML these are patients 18 to 60, and they randomized them one-to-one to, 1 to 7 plus 3 plus either placebo or mitostorin for induction. And I think one issue here, potentially, is that they use donorubicin 60 milligrams per meter squared in induction. So I guess I'll put it back to you guys, Dale and, and mm-hmm. Anthony. Would you use dono 60 in this young FIT AML FLT
0: 3 positive patient prior to this trial? I would not use uh, 60. Um, I think we have enough evidence from, you know, Fernandez, uh, Lohenberg, and then also the UK protocol that we mentioned uh, on the last podcast, that um, not only 90 per meter squared times three uh, was better than 60 per meter squared, but it was actually a double induction. So it was, (laughs) uh, in total, 420 milligrams per meter squared was better than 330 milligrams per meter squared. But I only want to give 270 milligrams per meter squared, or 90 times three. And so 60 per meter squared to me is it's still underdosing a FLT3 positive patient based off of that, the the UK uh, MRC data.
1: Yeah, so that was the only subgroup that trended towards a benefit, the FLT3 positive patients. So if you're going to give anyone intensified anthracycline, mm-hmm. it is the FLT3 positive AML patients.
0: Well, I, I think, Bernie, you're going to talk about just the incremental benefit mm-hmm. of Ratify, right? Yeah. It's about a... Yeah. I'm just going to steal your thunder here. So 7%-ish okay. improvement in overall survival. No, right? no, no. 7%? The median 7% survival is years.
1: 74 months versus 25 months, Anthony. That, that is the most... It's
0: triple the survival benefit. That is complete hocus pocus, <laughs> though. That the, the, the problem with that is take a look at the the survival curve. It The inflection point, they got so lucky the inflection point is exactly right at the median. So the mitostar arm just hovers right above 50% and just kind of stays there. And then the uh, the control arm just hovers right below that. And so your median is completely skewed. So you need to look at the hazard ratio or look at, uh, at a specific time point. So at four years, what is the difference in overall survival? It's not a tripling, quadrupling, a, you know, increase in median or survival. It's it's a seven percent, fifty one versus forty four percent. So a seven percent. So you could tiny, argue tiny. that the benefit of pushing your Donorubicin dose would have completely abrogated that small incremental benefit. So um, yeah, it's an open question of yeah. does starn add anything when you give dono ninety? Yeah, I, I
1: I agree, and I think there's only a couple other things to add, which could explain this incremental benefit. Uh, I think it's important to note that, you know, they saw in the early phase one trials that giving azole antifungals and strong CYP3A4 inhibitors to patients receiving mitostaurin increased fatal pulmonary adverse effects because concentrations increased pretty significantly. Maybe we'll talk about that. We'll save that for a little bit later. Um, But we know that azole antifungals also improve overall survival in AML patients you are taking away... One incremental survival benefit to give that potential incremental survival benefit. They also didn't take patients to transplant as standard of care on this study. And they didn't provide post transplant
0: maintenance. They only transplanted 28% of patients in CR1. Yeah, I was just gonna ask Dale. Dale, in your practice, a fit, a young fit patient, uh, just all comers, they have a donor, they don't have a donor, just in your clinic on a day to day basis, what would you say you tra- what is your transplant rate?
2: Yeah, I, I you know I, again I'm blessed to have both you and Bernie and your colleague Lydia um, keeping me honest and doing the right thing for patients um, I'm also blessed to have some very 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 good transplant providers here at the University of Michigan and they work really hard to identify best available donor using traditional strategies, um, more recent strategies of um, you know, haploidentical transplants, cord blood transplants, even mismatched, unrelated donor transplants. And so, if I send them a young, fit, foot three positive patient in CR1 that needs consideration for an allo transplant, I think here at Michigan we probably are able to find donors for greater than ninety percent of those individuals, given the opportunities for cellular therapy that that we have today. So it would wow. be pretty unusual for a, a Fit patients in the ratified trial to not have a transplant option because they can't find a donor. So I would have to think that that very low transplant frequency was a medical decision away from donor versus no donor, and more towards the guidance of the individual provider making that decision.
0: Wow, close to ninety percent. And Bernie, you said how many were transplanted? Thirty-ish. Twenty. Yeah, twenty-eight percent
1: in CR1. So wow, it's significantly lower. And I I think the key point here is mitostorin provides some benefit in preventing relapse. But I think the dramatic benefit that is often quoted of, you know, three times better survival is greatly overstated. So we're talking about a pretty marginal gain here that one could argue is potentially related to these other factors. Now, that being said, at Michigan, we have this drug available. We've got great support for these patients. We actually avoid it in induction because of those reasons. We want to provide dono 90 per meter squared. We want to provide that azole antifungal benefit. And there doesn't seem to be an increase in response rates with mynostaurin, but the benefit appears to be in preventing relapse. And so we give it to patients um, while they're awaiting transplant and consolidation, and then take them to transplant as
0: our standard of care. So this is clearly the day of heresy because what we're Mm -hmm. doing uh, is uh, probably frowned upon because you're like, you're removing a drug that approves overall survival out of of induction. But quite frankly, uh, we have a lot of listeners across the world and not everybody can get uh, in in on an inpatient side because of cost. Uh, Number two, many don't have molecular testing back. Uh, to even start it in induction. So our beliefs are it probably prevents relapse. It doesn't push patients into a CR. Mm-hmm. Um, some people argue, oh, it's a deeper CR. I have yet to see any any deeper remissions, MRD data, uh, come out from this, but that's certainly the counter argument.
1: And let me throw a middle ground at you. They provided okay. 14 days of midostaurin in induction. Why not wait for them to recover their counts? then you can give them that 14 days while you're waiting to see them in clinic again. You know, if you truly think those 14 days are necessary, there is a window to give the drug, but wait until they recover their counts and you don't need these azoles. You don't need to put them at risk for higher toxicities and then guessing at a mitostarin dose,
0: which may or may not even work. It's definitely guesswork on the mitostarin. Um We can get into that a little bit later, but I wanna throw you guys uh, a little curveball here. here. Um, Let's say that the quantum first study, which is quasartinib plus three and seven versus three plus seven without mitostarin, unfortunately. Um, so we have essentially two studies here, ratify that beat the current standard of care, three plus seven, and you've got quantum first that beat the old standard of care, three plus seven. So you're essentially on a, an equivalent playing field here. If the FDA approved Quazartinib today, are we going to change practice, guys?
2: I, I think it's an excellent question, and we can always start by giving the hedge of, well, I haven't seen the published data. What is the <laughs> CR rate? You know, the same hypotheses that we're we're doing now is, it, is did the improvement in survival come as a result of an improvement in CR rate in addition to overall survival? And I think that's what Bernie was bringing up is one of the most striking things about the, the Ratified trial was that non statistically significant difference in CR rate that led then subsequently to measurable differences in EFS and potentially OS and whether or not it was not helping patients get into remission, but helping them stay in remission. The other thing that we often always have to debate is again, was the study done in a real world setting versus a clinical trial only setting where again, you, had your hand held and were prevented from giving azole antifungals. I don't minimize the era that we didn't have these broad spectrum invasive mold infection preventing agents. And you know, those of us who have been in the game long enough to treat leukemia, free azole antifungals definitely fear the day of patients having 30 and 40 days of neutropenia and coming in with really bad mold infections. And there's a reason that these azole antifungals demonstrated a survival advantage when many of the chemotherapy agents that we were investigating in the late 90s and mid 2000s were not demonstrating survival advantages because mold infections are real events, they do happen, and they impact patients' clinical outcomes and survival. And so part of the dilemma with your question, Anthony, is going to relate to whether or not we truly see impacts in CR rates as well as overall survival. And what can we give and not give safely with that agent during the most delicate time of these patients?
0: Absolutely. And I um I've actually pulled the uh uh the quantum first um presentation that Harry Erba presented. And so the CR rates are no different, but the CRI rates are uh, a little bit higher. We know how myelosuppressive quizartinib can be. Um, the duration of neutropenia ended up being an entire week longer, so our patients would probably have to stay in our hospital a week longer now, uh, waiting for count recovery. Um, and so, so it, I think I agree with you, Dale. I think we still need more information. Uh, I'd, lo- I'd love, to see the publication. Uh, Bernie, some people are saying, um, because we, this study included patients up to the age of, I think it was like 75, but ratify only included patients up to the age of 60 that, oh, maybe quasartinib will be the drug that I use for older patients. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I see your face. I
1: love it. <laughs> I think that is a, a pretty massive stretch. And I suspect when we pull the of data and stratify by age, we're not going to see, you know, that traumatic of a benefit. This drug is toxic. And even though it's more selective for FLT3, I think it's just as to- toxic, if not more toxic than mitostaurin, especially in terms of, like you said, a week longer of cytopenia
0: in a 75-year-old sounds like absolutely the worst idea ever. <laughs> so we have to be careful because dale i know this is your f- favorite flit 3 <laughs> inhibitor right i mean you've been in, uh, in, on a number of these uh, early phase trials um and so you've just grown to to like it and i know you have several patients that will beg to differ with bernie that it actually is very well tolerated and you have patients that have had very durable slash potentially you've cured patients with just quizartnib. so uh, i know dale you you, you indeed, have... indeed 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs>
2: Yeah, you know, it's always hard to get that N of 1 bias out of your head, or in this case, an N of 2 or 3 biases out of your head when we did indeed participate when quizartinib didn't even have a name. It was AC220 and was under clinical development for the relapse refractory setting of comparing quizartinib, or at that time, AC220 compared to investigator standard of care for reinduction in AML patients. And I do have several patients that are now beyond five years of remission, both of them having failed allotransplant transplant and coming into the trial without second transplant options. And you know, the drug is clearly, clearly, clearly active, but we also learned and I, I want to reemphasize what you both said, We learned during that clinical use in the relapse refractory setting that the drug is indeed very myelosuppressive, that dose adjustments do need to be made when antifungal prophylaxis is given concurrently. And I'm not surprised that the data is showing higher rates of CRIs, perhaps than CRs, because of that ongoing myelosuppression that the drug has.
0: And you know, the other adverse effect we have to talk about, and I know, Dale, there were several uh, modifications uh, during the studies that you took part in, and that's the cardiac adverse effects and how it prolongs the QTC. And this is one of the reasons why uh, ODAC... Uh, recommended to the FDA not to approve uh, quazartinib based off of the quantum R. I think there are a number of reasons, imbalances with treatment arms and and whatnot, but the other main thing that really scared ODAC was how it prolongs the QT. So most of our drugs that prolong the QT, say like ondansetron or Zofran, they actually inhibit uh, the... The rapid delayed rectifier. Uh, so these are essentially ion channels that help with uh, uh, repolar repolarization of, of cardiac tissue, right? And so so zofran uh, inhibits rapid delayed rectifier. Uh, Quisartinib ap- actually inhibits QTC in a very different manner. It inhibits the 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 slow delayed rectifier. And essentially, what this means is that. Um, when your patient has uh, periods of tachycardia, the QT will not shorten because you're you're inhibiting that slow delayed rectifier. So this can cause a, a highly highly arrhythmogenic uh, condition and can lead to you know sudden cardiac death. We certainly can see patients just have just fall uh, and lose consciousness and and have syncope. Um, and this is especially true when you inhibit both ion channels both the slow and the rapid which we do in clinical practice often with um you know our antiemetics and a variety of other medications and so uh odak actually recommended um you know, not that this got approved, but they are making multiple recommendations of like, how are we going to mitigate this cardiac toxicity? And these are patients that are going to be on quasartanib now for potentially three years, as opposed to, you know, only six months or so in the relapse refractory setting. How can we prevent patients from having sudden cardiac death? Um, They, you know, threw around, you know, all patients should be on beta blockers um, or, you know, absolutely do not start any other QT prolonging drugs. So I think it's something that I'm sure the FDA is going to be looking at uh, as this drug uh, gets um, put up for, for um, approval uh, for the frontline setting. Um, Dale, uh, any other thoughts? I know you have to run to another meeting and Bernie and I can continue on the podcast, but any other thoughts on Quizartinib and the cardiac adverse effects?
2: No, you're absolutely right. Um, I think when the drug was first being developed in the phase one setting, the doses that were being investigated were, were much, much, much higher than we're clinically evaluating these days. And and the main issue was an early recognition of QT prolongation. I thank you again for nerding out with us and talking about things that I never thought that Wolverheem would ever talk about, and that is repolarization of the ventricle and the heart. Um but that's wonderful. Yeah. Um,
0: no, I I, no, I almost I I, I I almost threw up in my mouth talking yeah. about cardiac I mean, the, heart, the heart is
1: for <laughs> pumping chemotherapy around the exactly. body. Exactly. Let's, let's not sugarcoat it. That's
2: right. The only reason exactly. that it exists is to do our work for our blood. Yeah. Exactly. So, no, I, I think your point is well validated that you know, we're, we, we probably will then be relegated to become uh, nephrologists as well, as well as cardiologists by really making sure that potassium and magnesium levels are perfectly two and four respectively. Um, And making sure that patients are safe. But at the end of the day, you know, if a drug has a clinical benefit to patients and we can prove that benefit can be done so safely, then we will have to consider the drug, but it does bring in additional challenges not only during the induction phase when they're right in front of you every single day of every single hour, and you're able to get um, electrolytes performed, you're able to get EKGs performed, but as you said, during maintenance, if these patients are going off to their primary care physicians and given other medications that could potentially prolong the QT um, interval, you know, how will hematologists have to become more and more involved to ensure patient safety during that maintenance phase?
1: You know, I think to kind of wrap up some of this discussion, I think you know, current standard of care is 7 plus 3 plus mitostorin. We talked about how some of those benefits may be marginal. Uh, we now have the quantum first data uh, in abstract form, and hopefully this, this you know, the more data comes out and the devil will be in the details. But as of right now, the comparator didn't have mitostorin. It was placebo. The comparator was 7 plus 3 with DONO60, so same issues apply. Only around 20 to 30% of patients went to transplant. Again, same issues apply. Does the Quisartinib data change our practice, or are we continuing to practice like we will currently? Dale,
0: anything to add, Anthony?
2: This time I'll let Anthony go, and I'll I'll play his um, evil <laughs> twin in just a minute.
0: <laughs> well, I know Dale's going to defend Quisartinib, uh, so I'll I'll. Uh, I'll take the counterpoint to that um so i think so where i think was so i i don't think until i see the details i i i really worried about that additional mild suppression i do really really worry about the qtc uh not that mitostarn is is all that great and well tolerated but i i think uh you know sudden cardiac death really worries me and so i think i would still use the inferior FLT3 inhibitor, uh, mitostarin, uh, because I don't know if is any better. I do know that it's more toxic, at least from a myelosuppressive perspective, in the cardiac. And also, if you look at the survival curves uh, presented by Harry Urba, the first 60 days, it actually dips below uh, and then they and then they cross over again. So it's showing that in the first 60 days, there are a, a, a number of of deaths, uh, adverse event related deaths from the Um And then eventually because quasartenib is a, a great flt three inhibitor, you end up seeing you know them cross back over and then quazartenib has uh, an improvement in relapse-free survival and in overall survival.
2: Yeah, I, I was thinking back to high school debate, another nerdy thing that I did growing up, and it's always easier to be on the negative or the defense than it is on the positive or prosecutorial standpoint. So I was thinking about potential other negatives, and I I was going to um, enthusiastically ask for your opinions as well. One of the other things that we haven't talked about is, technically, quizartinib is potentially only active against the ITD mutation, and Midasaurin potentially has activity against both the ITD and TKD mutation Now, you know in post hoc analysis of the ratified trial, um, the event pre survival at five years was still statistically significant in the TKD population, but the five year overall survival lost its statistical significance. But do you worry about switching to a drug that potentially has less activity against the TKD? and we know that one of the mechanisms of resistance is the outgrowth of subclones that we talked about earlier that not all of these clones are the same, and there could be underlying cells that contain the TKD mutation, and will we see in future data from this trial that we see an outgrowth of TKD mutations because of the initial inhibitor chosen?
0: I think that's such a great point. I think, uh, well, point number one is that, so for our uh, TKD-mutated patients, we can't use Quisartinib up front. You're still going to use uh, Mitostarin because midostaurin, uh, as Dale uh, mentioned earlier, is a type one inhibitor. quasartinib is a type two inhibitor. So, so that that number one, number two. You know, one of the things that I do wonder is, yes, you're probably going to have selective pressure, and you're going to uh, have higher TKD relapses potentially. Um, with with quasartina, but the question that I have is: Are FLT3 cells just smart enough that they're just going to find a way, right? Whether it's a TKD mutation or a, a RAS MAP uh, uh, activation uh, mutation, which seems like those are the most common mutations uh, with FLT3 um, AML, you wonder: Are they just going to find a way to resist, whether it is a TKD or not? And so that's one thing that I'll be looking forward to seeing more and more data is. Do you have an increase um, uh, resistance overall not just the su- the the subtypes of types of resistance
2: No and, and I hear you loud and I hear you clear but you know clearly you've come to my clinic and you've seen some long-term survivors and and God bless we even have some a few long-term survivors who are of that 10% population that I talked about earlier that couldn't get a transplant either because they didn't have a donor or they weren't medically cleared for allogeneic transplant. So I can't say that the bad guy always wins, but I do agree with you that these cells are leukemia cells. Um, They tend to have bad behavior and that bad behavior can worsen over time. So I I hear you loud that despite our best intentions, we're probably still going to be debating how we treat foot three positive patients 10 years from now when we're still listening to the Wolverine podcast. Um, But I (laughs) won't say that I'm all negative and, and do have um, enthusiastic um, thoughts about patients going into clinical care with FLT3 positive AML. My goal is still to cure these patients and we do a lot of celebrating still in our clinic.
0: That's wonderful to hear. You know, the, as you were talking in the other place that I think potentially quasartmid could play a role is is our is our mitostarin intolerant patients. I know Dale in your clinics you have multiple patients that just cannot tolerate mitostarin. The nausea is horrible, despite Ratify not really showing that. In in real world, the nausea is terrible for patients. So Potentially, a, an additional agent we could use in an intolerant patient, maybe, because I think what you're probably using serafinib, or maybe trying to petition insurance for gilteritinib
2: in that setting. I think there are two different um, populations where we talk about alternative PKIs um, in the fit, transplantable patient population. Um, I know that we haven't yet brought this up, and time may prevent us from from doing that today. But you know, talking about maintenance post-transplant. Um, obviously, Midostorin, as part of the ratified trial, received FDA approval for its use in combination with chemotherapy during induction and consolidation, as well as one year of maintenance. But for patients who move on to allo-transplants, currently, in the United States at least, there are no FDA-approved agents for flip 3 positive patients to mitigate their chance of relapse after allo-transplant. That being said, there is data on the use of post-transplant maintenance. um, And what we have internally focused on is mainly our own retrospective information on the use of serafinib, a, again, class two tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's currently only FDA approved for renal cell and hepatocellular carcinoma, but has been investigated in a prospective fashion with the Sormaine data, as well as our own retrospective review, showing an improvement in relapse-free survival, a pretty significant one-year improvement in relapse-free survival for patients receiving that drug as maintenance. So we do entertain the use of serafinib as maintenance post-allotransplant based upon that data, but again, primarily in the ITD population because of a concern over its activity in most patients with TKD mutations. Now, again, not all TKD mutations immediately rule out the use of serafinib. For example, one of the first mitostorin-resistant point mutations identified was the N676K mutation, and it was subsequently found that that mutation is serafinib-sensitive. So serafinib, while being a type 2 tyrosine kinase inhibitor, doesn't mean it absolutely has no activity against all TKD mutations. But for the most part, most TKD mutations that you're going to see if that patient has been transplanted, serafinib may not be the best maintenance op- option for them after transplant. So we do consider serafinib as maintenance post-transplant for the ITD population. And as you pointed out, right now in patients who are intolerant to mitostaurin, and especially those who have a TKD mutation, we are looking for the off-label use of gilteritinib, not necessarily because it's data driven, but because we're desperate to try to mitigate the early relapses that we saw before we had clinical use of maintenance therapy right after allo transplant.
1: That's a that's a phenomenal summary, Dale. Um, yeah, I think in the in the upfront setting right now, it, it is still going to be a debate. I think right now our standard still, uh, Um maybe quizartinib has a role in those intolerant patients prior to going to transplant. Um, with different tolerabilities and different issues. And I think the maintenance data is really quite interesting. And, and obviously, you, you know, you brought up our own data, which I'll pick on a little bit, uh, was a retrospective comparison of serafinib versus no maintenance. And I guess the issue with all of the retrospective studies, including ours, is that there is an inherent immortal time bias, where in order to get serafinib, you had to be doing great, right? We're not going to give serafinib if you've got rip-roaring GVHD, horrible infections, or cytopenia. So in all of, the, all of the retrospective comparisons, the FLT3 inhibitors tend to provide a benefit in maintenance therapy. Whether that's a true benefit of the FLT3 inhibitors versus um, simply bias in selecting patients for both arms, it's hard to say. In terms of randomized data, for serafinib, we have the SORMAIN trial, which you brought up which did show an improved um, relapse-free survival with serafinib. No overall survival benefit in in terms of a median overall survival, but the two-year overall survival was 90% versus 66%. So certainly, it looks like there is a trend. These are small studies. There was a serafinib open-label phase three out of China that also showed improved overall survival, but these patients were young. Median age was like 35 in that study. And so I think In real world, older patients, it's harder to deliver these agents post-transplant. And so I think serafinib probably has the bulk of the data, like you said, right now for ITD patients. Um, Whereas mitostaurin, the data is more limited. There's the RADIUS trial, which looked at um, FLIT3, ITD, and a few TKD patients getting mitostaurin. But the TKD numbers are just tiny. And in this study, there is no improvement in survival with mitostaurin. It's hard to say why. The N was really small. It was like 60 patients. So I think post-transplant maintenance is still an area for further study, especially for the TKD patients. And like you said, giltritinib, the data is ongoing. There's that CT, BMT CTN trial. And hopefully we get results from
0: that soon. And, you know, one other uh, criticisms that many bring up is uh, you're using maintenance therapy in patients that never were exposed to FLT3 inhibitors previously, right? So you wonder, um, would that have any influence? Honestly, I don't think so. I I really don't. I think it goes beyond just the effects on inhibiting FLT3. Um, There's some uh, preclinical data that... The GVL, right? It inhibits what IL, IL increases IL15. Bernie, is it? Um, so, um, so it may may just have sort of a GVL uh, augmenting effect as opposed to just TKD. So, I think we we hammered out uh, a young fit patient with flit 3 positive AML. Let's go into a challenging scenario. Um, Dale, do you want to present to us a older unfit patient, a patient who isn't a candidate for 3 plus 7, and then we can talk through how we treat that patient.
2: Sure, absolutely. So the second patient that I sort of gleaned from clinical experience is we're going to choose a 78-year-old gentleman now who presented to his local ER, like most leukemia patients, with increasing fatigue, dyspnea on exertion. And again, a CBC not surprisingly showed an elevated white count of around 50,000 Again, a low hemoglobin and a low platelet count in the six and 20 range. And again, had circulating blasts concerning for a malignant process in the bone marrow. Again, a bone marrow biopsy is performed and the aspirate and core biopsy show an immunophenotypically aberrant blast population of approximately 45% consistent with AML. Again, the cytogenetic testing and next generation sequencing are sent off of that material. His past medical history notes a mild renal insufficiency with a creatinine of 1.7 and he also has copd related to tobacco use and given a combination of his lung disease his mild to moderate renal insufficiency and his advanced age the clinical team felt that he was not a candidate for standard induction chemotherapy while discussing his clinical options again your molecular team has done their due diligence and reported back a FLT3. And again, he's identified to have an ITD mutation with an allelic ratio of 0.6. So again, a 78-year-old gentleman with a recent diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia um, is thought to be unfit because of renal, lung and advanced age, not on his side and has a FLT3 ITD mutation.
0: All right, Bernie, how would you treat this patient?
2: Oh, picking on me again, eh? Yeah, Um,
1: absolutely. (laughs) That's fine. So I think, you know, irrespective of the FLT3 mutation, I think in these elderly unfit unfit patients for AML, I think hypomethylating agents and venetoclax would be current standard of care. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you look at in VLEA, the FLT3 patients, even if you, I know the data's grouped together, ITD and TKDs, the CRCRI rates are maintained. Um, and you mm-hmm. see very CR, very high in the seventy five percent ish range CRCRi rates with favorable overall survival results in patients with FLT three ITD who are treated with ven and HMA. And so mm-hmm. I I would choose ven and HMA. Our our day we use dasatinib here. That's another story for another day. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that would be my standard of approach right
2: now. Were you were either of you surprised? when recently the publication of the randomized experience between azacitidine, azacitidine plus giltritinib or giltritinib alone did not demonstrate its primary endpoint, did not demonstrate an improvement in overall survival. Were you surprised by that?
0: Absolutely not. I could have called this uh, right at the moment they designed this study, right? Because this is what we've talked about on multiple, multiple podcasts. Whether you use a doublet versus you use single agent sequential in a non-curative setting, I don't think you're going to be improving overall survival. Granted, as long as you give that agent upon relapse, and I think uh, the lacewing uh, authors did a, a decent job at providing patients with with FLIT three inhibitors uh, upon relapse. So the question that uh, this study needs to answer is: Is gilteritinib plus HMA better than azacitidine or HMA followed by uh, you know the standard of care, which would be a FLIT three inhibitor upon relapse, and I want to say about at least 30% or so of patients ended up receiving a FLT3 inhibitor on relapse. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not surprised at all that there's no overall survival and, benefit. And,
1: and that's the difference between the this giltritinib data and the HMA-Ven data. When you give HMA-Ven, Ven as a single agent isn't going to work in the relapse setting, whereas here you have an option in the relapse setting that is going to work. And I would even argue that thir- you know 37% is probably uh, e- even a low low ball here so i i I think you know i think because we have options at relapse you know you're you're less likely to see an impact of the drug in the upfront setting um Mm -hmm. and i think that's why this
0: differs from the venasa data yep so lacewing not going to change practice agree uh with HMA Ven as our standard of care. I think it's still, we still have an unmet need though. Uh, these patients unfortunately uh, don't do th- that well, right? We're not curing patients, uh, older patients with FLT3 positive disease. We still have room for improvement. When you look at specifically pooled data from uh, Clonop- um this was published in Uh, clinical cancer research um, this past year, they actually broke out the ITDs versus TKDs. The TKDs do actually quite well. Um, This is relative, right? But uh, you're looking at close to a 20-month overall survival with a TKD. Um, But our, our ITDs actually do worse than what the median did in bi So these patients only have a 9.9 month overall survival. And so I do think that we still have a big unmet need despite getting these patients into remission. Bernie mentioned about 70% CR rate. Unfortunately, these patients are not staying in remission uh, with HMA Venn. So that brings us to our last discussion. Should we be using triplet therapy uh, in these patients uh, to hopefully prolong their, their remissions?
1: No.
2: Yeah, so here we go to uh heresy number fourteen, I think we're up to. Here we are. Um, <laughs> and you know, I'm going to uh probably set off some bells and alarms that are we getting to the point of myeloma now where we have so <laughs> many uh drugs in the cookbook that we're going to have to start talking about triplet and quadruplet and Beyond therapies, because we want to throw everything into the pot all at once. And, you know, obviously there's still interest and investigation out there, but it seems like the tenor or the take home message in what concerns me is that when you combine, let's say, for example, an HMA plus a FLT3 directed inhibitor plus a BCL2 inhibitor all at the same time. The final end game in many of these patients is profound and prolonged pancytopenia. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, do we then have to modify the regimen so much that you lose the biologic consequence of the therapy that you're going after? You're talking about using sprinkles of HMA. <laughs> you're talking about licking the lollipop of the needle clacks once a day. <laughs> because oh, all the can't
0: right right as opposed to sequentially using these agents in their their most effective dose right so i that's so i well mean there down. are <laughs> like let me play devil's advocate which i hate um
1: there are single yeah. arm phase one slash two studies of triplet venazagiltritinib including you know one that's presented at ash showing a ninety five percent CR rate in twenty-one patients and eighty uh, percent one year overall survival in newly diagnosed patients. I mean that's that's pretty good, right? It's it's it but I also looks... have
2: to thank you
0: you go ahead Anthony. No 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 Dale you came right out of the 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 I love it. Go ahead.
2: No, I think the devil's in the details, and, and you know what you'll probably end up finding is that those patients went through 13 iterations of 14 amendments to the protocol to be able to provide them ongoing clinical care, and what we've seen from many similar studies in multi-agent therapies for AML is that you end up having to do almost sequential hyper CBAD style treatment rather than combinatorial therapy where you give a cycle of HMA then a cycle of HMA gilperitinib and go back and forth versus using all triplet therapies and I think again what you're going to see when those publications come out if there's at all honesty in them is that the doses of the agents became so low to allow patients to have transfusion independent intervals that we really have to begin to wonder were they really getting triplet therapy
0: absolutely agree and you know the other thing to, to, to talk about is a large proportion of AML is being treated in the community um, we're, we're still struggling to use just HMA Ven because of the myelosuppression. so imagine trying to bring this regimen out to the community a triplet um, there's going to be a lot of starting stopping increased dose lo- lowering doses um, and so it's this is going to be a,
2: not, a not to manage the cost for sure but I,
1: I I mean oh, yeah, the cost, yeah. here
2: yeah. by uh who's ever debated cost on this podcast before? <laughs>
1: I, I mean I think it's insane. I think before, before we you... can adopt this, like yeah, single agent phase twos, they always look great, you know? Pick pick any random single arm phase two. It's always gonna look amazing. But until we have data comparing triple combination to HMA Ven in a
0: true randomized controlled trial, get out of here with that. Or in a sequential yeah. fashion. Um I mean it's hard it's it's really um I mean, it's nice to see these response rates, right? This is p- very promising, but we can't just fomo in on promising things. Uh, we would be burned, um, you know, throughout history if we did this. Um, the other uh, place that I've hear people use arguments is, oh, I want to use this triplet because I want to get this patient to transplant asap, and so I want to give them their highest chance of a CR, their fastest chance of a CR. Um, and because I want to give them the transplant, the issue that I have with that is, well, if your patient is fit for transplant, why are you not just doing the standard of care three plus seven with a with a with a TKI, right? So, I, I, that argument I I don't quite buy, but I don't know if you guys buy that argument.
2: Yeah, I think the other hidden message behind that is a presumption that that triplet therapy is going to do something magical to make that patient more eligible for transplant or better candidate for transplant by, quote unquote, deepening their remission. And there's still obviously a lot of intensive debate, as you pointed out very early in this discussion about the role of MRD in AML and clinical outcomes. And so we don't yet have prime time information indicating that that triplet therapy is going to put somebody into a 10 to the minus 84 MRD level and make them the best candidate ever for a transplant. And you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, what makes the best patient for transplant with FLT3 positive disease is to get them to transplant as fit as possible and as quickly as possible with the best counts as possible. And if they have months long of cytopenias because they're on triplet therapy, that may not be the best situation moving forward.
0: I absolutely love everything you said, Dale. This is why we brought the great Doctor Bigsby <laughs> onto this podcast.
2: <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm the one that's honored and blessed. You know, I've I've listened from day one. I've got the sticker on my bumper of my car. <laughs> I'm advertising for you guys.
0: Oh, that's a really yeah. good idea. We should get some. <laughs> Oh guys, well this has been really fun. I I think we could talk about FLIT3 with uh, with the three of us for the next seven hours, but I think the audience is probably wondering when we're wrapping this up. So I want to thank everybody for sticking it uh, with us uh, and listening, and obviously Dale, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: No, thank you Anthony, and thank you so much Bernie for all of your wisdom and guidance and help on the floor and with our patients. Um, We're really blessed at Michigan to have our Leukemia Pharmacy team here, and it's what really makes the difference uh for our patients we are thinking. equally equally as okay. lucky well, if to it wasn't with you
1: as well and, yep. and the great leukemia team at michigan so
0: yep completely agree you guys uh you patrick Kristen, are the reason why we're able to do so much uh you you definitely empower us so to all the other um leukemia uh physicians out there if you want pharmacists like bernie and i be like dale and empower those to to, to make decisions and be a part of decision making so thanks dale
2: Yep. And we will always keep, uh, team bad blood (laughs) as our moniker and no one else. All right.
0: (laughs) Cheers, everybody. Perfect. All right. Ciao.